That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi. Before we get into the show, a super quick reminder. When you leave ratings and reviews for our show, it helps us so much. Even if you don't feel like writing out a review, if you just push those stars buttons, give us a strong review, it helps other people find us. And that is so good for us. Thank you so much for all of your support. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more where this came from and want to support us in general, head to a thingortwohq.com and sign up for Secret Menu, which will get weekly access to members-only content. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. Oh, and something else this week. Mm. Um, yes, yes. Um, we have a bonus episode coming on Thursday. Yes. It's a real thrill. We are talking about shopping memories and robes brought to you by Chanel. We're working double time these days. Double time. Double Doing time. Two, two episodes a week occasionally, and you don't even have to pay extra for it. That's right. It's a yeah. GWP with the thing you didn't pay for. Speaking <laughs> of GWPs. Yes. <laughs> we wanted to talk about nostalgic sense. And the first thing that came to mind for me was the nostalgia of rubbing your wrist on the inside of a magazine ad. <laughs> I like, yes, Claire, absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like your, my, that, that was definitely my first encounter with yeah. perfume. That's not true. My, because my mom never wore perfume. Same, same. So this Wait, was what? like my only access. Same. Well, okay. So my other entry point was that my grandmother had old perfumes on mm-hmm. her dresser and they definitely smelled like, they smelled like they were 40 years. Like they were, they were yes, old, this- old, old. Mm-hmm. And I would also put that on and yeah. just <laughs> smelled like a 90 year old person. Well, you also like, like was- I remember being young and thinking I could get away with it, like put on a little bit. And then some adult would be like, did you put on perfume? And you'd be like, like no, no, no. <laughs> no. Where'd you get that idea? Yeah. What, did I smell like white diamonds? No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, 100%. There was no perfume in my house. And so those magazine ads were my only access. And it was so exciting. And you would like rip them out and save them. Like that was my perfume collection. And you and, know, like, save you them had, for a It had the occasion. like slight sandpapery quality mm-hmm. of rubbing against your skin. Like it wasn't like a pleasant experience. <laughs> well, I'm like dried glue also. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And then the victory when the innovation at some point where there were the little plastic packets yes, on the page like, and said. like bottles. Yes. Yeah. Ex- they had the picture Shape of the bottle of the on bottle. them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Die cut. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. Mm-hmm. And you, then you'd be like, oh, wow, this is like actual real perfume not mixed with glue. Oh, yeah. No, totally. <laughs> I I mean, I obviously don't read print as much as I used to, but I also just – I mean, I, I do still read some print, and I was like, I haven't seen one of those in so long. So I Googled around. First, there was like an Ad Age article. I don't know if it was Ad Age, but something similar in 2014 that was like scented ads are making a comeback. Like this is happening again. But that was 2014, and I don't think they've made a I huge don't think comeback. So, so I, 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 don't, I think that <laughs> prediction did fell flat. Yeah. But there was a wealth of information on the history and like pre- predicted future of scented ads in a 1988 New York Times article. It was so well researched. I was and so long. I was so impressed with this Tell article. Me everything basically. So it says. So this is 1988. They write fragrance strips, sometimes known as scent strips, are just a decade old, but they have already created a 40 million dollar a year business and breathed new life into the four billion dollar a year American fragrance industry. It goes on to say like basically how they were invented and like like. Most things, it was like an accident that was invented out of some other like science, you know, something that happened in a lab that somebody was trying to solve for something else and people figured out, oh, this would work for for scented perfume. It's the waffle cone of 1,000% (laughs) of perfume marketing. And it says the potential for the fragrance industry did not become apparent until the early 1980s when a Beverly Hills boutique named Giorgio just love everything about that sentence. There we go. Yep. Sought to introduce its own perfume using strips. Inserted in several magazines and attached to envelopes, the strips ignited $2.5 million in sale the first year, a figure that has since risen to more than $100 million. Basically, also the article predicts that the scented advertisements will reach like the food industry. <laughs> that like people oh, will be will, advertising. Like, will be licking No, no, things. no. You'll just like smell oh. what this amazing pasta sauce smells like and you'll want to buy it, which never happens. I happened. guess that's better than me thinking we're going to be like <laughs> licking flaming hot paper. <laughs> I mean, sounds delicious. But no, this was p- predicted with extreme confidence. I can't remember what. There was one other industry that they thought it would be relevant to, but food for sure. They'd be like, yeah, you're going to be able to smell what these French fries smell like, which would make sense. Like you do crave that, you know, like stuff when you smell it. Totally. Well, and like scratch and sniff technology must have existed. Yes. So they say that this is a direct descendant of scratch and sniff technology. Technology. Yes. No, they <laughs> use that word in the article. Okay. <laughs> They're right. like, this This is like directly came out of scratch and sniff te- technology. And then basically says that like that preceded, that, that that was being used in perfume ads initially and then has some like very dated sentence. It's like, but turns out women don't want to have to scratch to like smell the stuff. It's dumb. Anyway, um, Mm -hmm. if you're Mm -hmm. interested, there's a lot more out there. It did make me be like, wow, somebody needs to write a book about the fragrance industry that includes a hefty chapter on, on these scented ad perfumes. I love this. Thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. We've been thinking about all of the things that we do aside from from therapy that are sort of our mental health saviors. And one of them is a kind of a work-specific thing, but can definitely be applied to everything, which is that, Erica, you and I end our weekly check-ins and sometimes our like other random check-ins with the question, how are you feeling about everything? Which has just been such a like nice sort of routine of ours because it's such an open-ended question, especially in the context of work. It can open up the the sort of floor for you to talk about what's driving you crazy at work or just be like, this thing's happening at home that's driving me nuts. And we're just like, I slept badly and I'm yeah. tired and I'm like kind of rough today because of it. And if you're getting a vibe off of me, it could be that. 
<laughs> exactly. It's just been such a, a sort of helpful part of our dynamic and especially the fact that we have to blend work and personal life. It's a good routine. And I feel like you could do it at work, but you could also do it with your friends. It just sort of opens up the floor both for you to get your own stuff out and for whoever you ask to see where the question takes them. And another thing, you know, that we obviously feel very strongly about is therapy, like actual therapy, um, not substitutes for it. So talking to a licensed therapist can make you feel better. Better help is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. So you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. They have 3000 us licensed therapists across all 50 States and four modes of communication. So you can text chat, phone and video with your therapist. You can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours and schedule weekly secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Anything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're not happy with your counselor, you can just request a different one. BetterHelp was committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash a thing or two. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash a thing or two. Thank you so much for supporting the sponsors. Make it possible for us to bring you this show every week. Thank you so much to Modern Fertility for sponsoring today's episode. Before we get into this, we did want to take a minute to acknowledge how painful the topic of fertility can be for so many people and to send our love to anyone dealing with infertility or pregnancy loss. And to that point, if you need to skip over this part, go for it. Hit the 30-second fast-forward button a few times and you should be past it. So... So many people are into this idea of like knowing everything about their health. Like we're testing, we're like learning about our bodies, we're doing all sorts of stuff to just we're like tracking. get a handle on what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I've been really excited about is that it's just becoming way more common for women to want to get a handle on their fertility too. And whether that relates to because you want to have kids at some point and you're not ready now, or maybe you don't even want kids, but you just want a better sense of sort of what's going on and how that's impacting your mood, your energy levels, whatever else it is, what's going on in your body. It's so amazing that we now have access to this sort of stuff. And because of companies like Modern Fertility, this type of testing is far more accessible than it's ever been. It's a lot more affordable than it's ever been. And it's personalized too. Modern Fertility is the easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing with a doctor can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility only costs $159 to get the same information. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash a thing or two, you can get $20 off your test. Also, if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can use those dollars on Modern Fertility. You'll get insight into how many eggs you have, hormone levels, other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means and you can and talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for next steps. If you want kids today, maybe in the future, maybe not at all, you want to get the information that will help you make the decision that's best for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash a thing or two. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash a thing or two. Modernfertility.com slash a thing or two. Hey, beautiful people. My name is Elisa Reynolds, and I'm the executive chef and founder of My Two Cents LA and host of My Last Meal, a new podcast that asks people from all walks of life, whether it's musicians, celebrities, artists, chefs, scientists, Renaissance men and women, what their last meal on earth would be and why. So don't forget to tune in on Fridays. You can find us anywhere you can listen to podcasts. So why not? Let me tell you about the last meal. 
Well, part of what got us into the topic of of this like nostalgic sense and and just like thinking back on the sense of our youth was talking about gap fragrances mm-hmm. very briefly and yes. like talk talking about the beauty products of our youth on another episode and mm-hmm. feeling like we just really didn't give enough space to fragrance. which Because it was such a big deal. It was, I mean, as, as we noted, such we a big were deal. desperate to get our hands on it. And it does feel like Gap was the first time that it kind of came within reach for us, especially if you weren't a Bath and Body Works girl. Yeah, because also it wasn't separate from the like shopping uh-huh. experience. Like it exactly. wasn't like you were going to the fragrance counter. You yeah. were just like going to check out and then the Gap perfumes were there and you could definitely like fiddle with them and put them on or whatever. Eve, like yes. even while you're like mom was buying you a pair of khaki shorts or something. 100%. I distinctly remember huddling around this like center kiosk table with the perfume set up on it and judging all the scents with my girlfriends. Yes, yes. Yes. And like heaven and dream were undeniably the good ones. The only good ones. And they were both blue, I believe, just different shades of blue. And I feel like indistinguishable scents. And like the names are indistinguishable. What's the difference between heaven and dream in the context of this? For me, like as a non-religious person, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. I just remember they were both good and I didn't have an opinion on which one was better. And then there was grass, which felt like it existed purely to be controversial. And it smelled bad. Absolutely. It smelled bad. I my, <laughs> had one friend in high school who uh, grass was her signature scent. Mm-hmm. And every and that set tells you everything about her personality. Mm-hmm. Like truly, everything about her personality is summarized by that. Where you're like, <laughs> oh, you are trying so hard to be different in a suburban high school environment. Got it. <laughs> it's it's perfect. It's it was for that person. That's who it was for. I like everything about it from what you just pointed out that like it was perfume in the clothing store to the fact that this one controversial scent existed as part of this week was freaking genius. We had asked Mickey Drexler, who was the CEO when this was happening of Gap, we'd asked him about it and he pointed us towards the fact that basically he had fallen in love with these scents, these soaps from this guy Gary McNatton who had like this small soap line, basically. So he bought Gary McNaughton's company, made him the head of personal care at Gap. And this guy, Gary, is who developed the entire scent line and, like, made that whole thing happen. And Gary is sort of a scent guru. He had, like, the grass thing was inspired by watching his dad mow the lawn. and Well, and, like, since then, so many grass things. And also just the idea of, like, tomato scents or, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. These, like, scents that were, that, like, at that time you wouldn't have worn. But now, of course, we just think of as, like, natural things to to scent candles. Well, and, yeah, now it's it's all about the woodsy, herbally, herby smells. Yeah. Fun fact, this this character, Gary, is now the co-founder of Hudson Grace, which is, like, this very scent-forward home line (laughs) that is now owned by Crate and Barrel, which I didn't realize. All of this. Yeah. All of this. Yeah. The other scents that we that like feel like exactly like that moment for us, mm-hmm. like late 90s, early aughts where Clinique, Happy, Polo Sport, Cool Water, Tommy Girl, CK1, and then like the Abercrombie oh scent that just was like yes. fucking <laughs> blasted out of that store, hit you like a ton of bricks. Have you seen the TikTok? You know, there's this whole genre of TikToks of millennials basically dressing like we dressed in high school. So like putting on like three um, polos three shirts. over. Yeah. yeah. And a mini skirt and, <laughs> and or, like a belt over yes, the three shirts. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was one that was like going to Hollister in high school. And it's like, put on the three shirts, do the thing. And then you put on this massive gas mask and you're like, okay, I'm ready because you've got to go up against the smell you're going to encounter. It's so insane. I think that they still do that at the Hollister, like blast the scent out the door. It's so offensive. 
I remember it's no longer there, but the the Abercrombie that was on Houston and Soho mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. for years yes. at that corner at like at uh, Houston and Broadway, mm-hmm. and you would walk down that street in the dead of winter, like like this season, yeah, and that scent would just hit you, and it just like felt so incongruous, like it was yes. just like it's like has this like kind of beachy, you know, like whatever, like that certainly was like the Abercrombie we grew up with, and it was it's just like so much, like it's just the brain can't compute. So intense. And it's just really, it was tough for our generation because scents of that era were so aggressive and the children wearing them didn't understand how to wear them subtly. So we would all just put on so much of the what most is subtly at 15? <laughs> what is subtly? What is that? I still, like, I think the one that's probably most evocative for me is cool water. It's so specific. Cool water, men or women? Mm, I don't even know if I could tell. I guess I could tell the difference. You could tell the difference. I guess men. Cool Water by Davidoff. I feel like we have to call it by its full name. (laughs) Out of respect. Who is Davidoff? Don't worry about it. (laughs) The person responsible for this scent. Gary McNaughton's chief rival. (laughs) That's right. His Nemo. Yeah. I just, I wore Cool Water for women Mm-hmm. for a while. I loved it. I I clearly did yeah. too. And then when I was in college, I wore, uh, like late in college, mm-hmm. wore uh, Coco Mademoiselle by Chanel. Thomas at some point got me another perfume uh, to replace it. And I know I, I remember not liking whatever he got me and maybe expressing this and like then him being <laughs> like, because I don't even think it was a holiday. I yeah. think it was just like, oh, I got you this thing. And you're like, thanks. I don't want it. Thanks. I don't need this. I got mm-hmm. this. I'm fine. Um, I have a signature scent. I don't need whatever this is. Mm-hmm. And then he expressed that his sister also wore Coco Mademoiselle. And That's so I think weird. it was like kind of weirding him out. <laughs> <laughs> My memory of your signature scent, and maybe this was post-college, was Daisy by Marc Jacobs. No? Oh, that was a period. Yeah, yeah, that was a period. That was post-college. Okay. I think that was like, yeah, God, yeah. I don't even think I could have told you that. Oh, yeah. That's really what I think of with you. I've talked about this, I feel like, a surprising amount of times on the podcast, but I just decided when I was 18 that I wanted a signature scent. And I think at some point, cool water was in the running. And there was something else that was also in the running. I can't remember, but I landed on light blue. That was it. That was going to be it. By Dolce Gabbana. My girlfriend, my girlfriends bought it for me for my 18th birthday. They all pitched in and I've worn it ever since. And I like, it feels also so incongruous with my personality to wear a Dolce Gabbana scent, but I just really like that, that perfume. But you also sometimes layer it with other things. I do very often. I, I like DS and Durga coriander. There's this Anika Catal scent that's discontinued that I really like that I bought a bunch of when it was discontinued because it's my mom's scent and I want it to be like around forever. I was thinking about how all of, almost all of these perfumes that we talked about, these fragrances, aside from, I guess, like Clinique and Cool Water were all fashion brands. Mm, um, mm-hmm. It would like that was like the thing that was happening. And right, I, you had the puffer that had the massive logo on it, and you wore the corresponding scent. Like you had a, you well, had, like a polo jacket. Yes, and you had a huge pu- polo yeah. puffer with the giant polo logo on it, or Tommy, or whatever, or Nautica, Nautica or like yeah, yes, we exactly. left Nautica out. Ah, uh, poor Nautica. Yeah. Um, and it made me think of the book, The End of Fashion by Terry Agins, who does such a good job explaining basically like the life, the world of licensing mm-hmm. and how and why perfume and like stockings and like just like all that little branded stuff that like licensed stuff became so the driving forces of all these fashion businesses it's during so the like 80s and 90s. Because yeah. I'm sure it was a cash cow, but it also was such an important part of the branding 
uh, it's the marketing too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, and like yeah. brand was just so big at that moment. And it was the first time at least that I can remember in that era where really young people became aware of brands. And obviously like music and hip hop played a huge role in this sort of thing. But um, yeah, the, the sense felt like such a big piece of that too. Yeah, because it's a part that you could you access. Afford. Even if yeah. it was like a stretch to buy the thing, exactly. it was like way less of a stretch than it would have been to buy an actual piece of clothing or whatever. And you could wear it every day. Yeah. It could be your thing. And wear lots of it. You could just wear like lots of it. It could be your brand. I also, I was realizing that that means that basically that like celebrity fragrance wasn't a part mm, of our no, not at all. teen years. And we, I think, grew up in the like last or like the last moment before that like peaked. Right. Um, well, and like we weren't, the Elizabeth Taylor scents were not a thing. Like they mm-hmm. had already, pa- that had passed. That passed. By exactly. The of this. Yeah. So there's this BBC article that sort of spells out the celebrity fragrance trajectory. And so Sophia Loren was the first to have a fragrance of her own called Sophia in 1981. And then Elizabeth Taylor is the first person who like really like had the fragrance that mm-hmm. was the thing, which she had a couple. And then White Diamonds in 1991, which became the best selling of all time. Okay. And then according to this article and quote by Chandler Burr, who used to be the scent critic for the New York Times. Oh my and God. Has, like, Can you imagine the of- scent critic for the New York Times? Oh, he's like a remarkable character and his books are like a real thing. And I don't understand why we don't have a sign critic for the New York Times anymore because I absolutely love it. He said, glow changed everything. Glow being J-Lo's first fragrance Mm -hmm. that came out in 2002. Then it was just like the whole world blew up. And that was like the Britney fragrances and whatever. And like that Midnight Fantasy by Britney was such a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And people would wear it, not exactly ironically, but with like a little bit of a wink. Um, And Chandler Burr even gave it four stars in the New York Times. Demonstrating not a snob about this stuff. Yeah. I love it. I mean – the slap fragrance thing is still happening. I mean, the Kim, Kim Kardashian is making so much money from her fragrances. And Rihanna, correct? I think. But yeah. I think it's like definitely, at least according to this article, in decline and has been since the 2008 recession. And I don't know if that's just people like kind of falling off of that version of celebrity. Like now I think celebrities are like, mm, I'm doing tequila. Like, <laughs> Well, true. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't know. I Yeah. More money in that maybe. I don't know. Yeah. You also dug up this scentmatchers.com. It's fascinating. It is a site that replicates discontinued fragrances. I mean, who knows like how well, how but well the, they're doing it. The drop down of what's available to you is a like just a journey, friends. It's like, oh, 1920 by Eddie Bauer, 1987 by Aeropostal. These like, are like the years that these scents existed? No, those or are the, the names. names. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> But I think that's when both of these businesses were founded. <laughs> okay, for, that for, like, makes fun. Wow, I love that. Okay, love that. I was trying to think, are there scents that feel signature to this era specifically? And Lil Labo Santal 33 and basically for sure. anything Palo Santo was what I came up with. I mean, I think it's so hard because I think that scents have kind of gone the same way as like entertainment or TV or whatever, Mm -hmm. where it's like there are no big fragrances anymore the same way there are no like big network TV shows anymore. And everything that is like even like big in your world is still relatively niche. Yeah. So there's no, there's just like no unifying culture. So we just don't have these things. things. And everybody wants to be unique. Everybody wants their own scent. Should we move into our, uh, the other thing that we've been thinking a lot about? Yeah. Thank you so much to Shopify for sponsoring today's episode. 
we've been Shopify users since 2010. Um, mm-hmm. And really, I feel like got to know like the ins and outs of the Shopify interface and the various options and various layouts. And I think now you and I are both pros at identifying which e-commerce experiences are Shopify. Oh, we know right away. Right away. Like immediately when yeah. you hit checkout, you're like, oh, they use Shopify. Yeah. And the interesting thing is it's like, it might be like a cool little ceramics company that's, mm-hmm. you know, selling releases three times a year, or it might be like a huge, you know, sportswear business or whatever that you're like, whoa, like this is yes. a giant company, but they're still using Shopify. It, it's really exciting to see because it has become the more common experience. And certainly when we started, because you know it was so long ago, it wasn't as widely used. When we started to see these businesses that were much bigger, more well-funded, more established than ours, that were also using Shopify, it felt like amazing validation to be like, oh, okay, like we're, we're using the right technology here. Well, it also just means that like as a business, if you grow, you don't have to quote unquote re-platform, which is a terrible yes. like experience. Which is a truly uh, a, a devastating experience. <laughs> <laughs> Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility with a million milestones and constant evolution needs. We grew of a kind over the course of nine years, and though you might not have realized it from outside, our commerce functionality was constantly being tweaked and upgraded on the back end, and Shopify was able to handle it all. Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. You can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash a thing or two, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and to get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash a thing or two right now. That's shopify.com slash a thing or two, all lowercase. We're so proud to partner with this company. And we're so grateful to you for supporting the sponsors who make it possible to bring you this show every week. Thank you so much to Honey Love for sponsoring today's episode. So we get so many good listener emails and voicemails and um, newsletter subscriber emails and voicemails asking like, what are the cute this and where do I find that? And one that we got recently was, I want an underwire, I want a non-underwire bra but not just like a bralet. Like I want something that's like doing a little bit more. I don't just want like the cute idea of a bra. And she specifically <laughs> wanted the to be able to hook it in the back. Like yeah, I don't just a hook want in the back. Which I, I, get. I don't want like a pull on. I thing. don't want a short tank top, is what she was saying. Yeah, I want a bra that yeah. just doesn't have a wire in it, which feels like it's like weirdly hard to come by. Yes. But the answer is honey love. Yes. Turns out that's the answer to the question. It is. Here we are. Honey Love is designed for comfort and looks and is as beautiful as your favorite lingerie with unparalleled construction. It's built for real bodies and their bras are sized from extra small to 3X. People love Honey Love. It has been featured in the New York Times, Good Morning America, and Brides Magazine and has thousands of five-star reviews. Plus, there's no risk at all. Honey Love offers free virtual consultations with fit specialists and a 30-day money-back guarantee. You deserve bras, underwear, shapewear, tanks, and leggings that instill confidence and that you'll want to show off. So go to honeylove.com and see for yourself. Before launch, every Honey Love product goes through one to two years of rigorous testing with real women. By the time it gets to you, you know it's going to look and feel great. See for yourself at honeylove.com and get 20% off a second item. Plus, when you use code a thing or two, you'll get an additional 10% off your entire order. Get 20% off your second item plus an additional 10% off at honeylove.com with code a thing or two. 
honeylove.com code a thing or two. Rules and restrictions may apply. Planning. Planning. (laughs) I feel like, and like grappling with it, like Mm -hmm. struggling with it, the challenge of it, planning in this world. Whenever I would be texting with somebody sort of right before the holidays or during the holidays and somebody would ask me what we were doing for the holidays, I would put the word, I would say the plan is, but I would put the word plan in scare quotes because it was just (laughs) like everybody was getting Omicron, flights weren't taking off. It just felt so lulzy. And I said to Chris that everything that we plan now like I say it out loud and then I mentally say LOL right afterwards. Like, of course we're going to Mexico for that wedding in December, LOL. Like, I don't know. No, I think that's how, I think couching it and like something in your, in like your mind verbally, like it's all healthy. And the more that we say LOL scare quotes, like who said, who can say God willing, like we'll see. So obviously COVID has been ruining plans for going on, what, like three years now? Yeah. But what sort of tipped it for me into a new place was that before we just knew for so long, we're not going anywhere. We're not making plans. plans. We're not doing it. And then with Omicron, right before Omicron hit, we all made plans because we thought we were sort of in the clear. Like Delta was hanging around, but it was sort of like, this is the new normal. We got to do this. And so it became a new level of just uncertainty and craziness where it was like, well, we made this plans. Is it okay to go through with them? I don't know. It reached peak lulziness for me. I think that's right. And also you and I both read this incredible book, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Which we talked about a bit on the obligation. Yeah. On on the the obligation obligation episode. episode. He calls it time management for mortals, but it's really, it's a philosophical take on time management, planning, all of that. And it's really, really wonderful. Um, I got a lot out of it. You same. You were same. you were sending me. I I requested that you send me sections that you liked because I just really wanted to be talking about it. And we weren't together, so you were sending me screenshots of your Kindle. <laughs> you know, classic. No, they weren't even screenshots. It's a they were photo. Photo, Claire. You were taking photos of your Kindle and then highlighting in with the mm-hmm. iPhone an- annotate like. Bit. What can I say? I'm technologically advanced. <laughs> it was really <laughs> wonderful. And you sent me this one section that was so good. I'm just going to read the whole thing. In the words of the American meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, a plan is just a thought. We treat our plans as though they are a lasso thrown from the present around the future in order to bring it under our command. But all a plan is, all it could ever possibly be, is a present moment statement of intention. It's an expression of your current thoughts about how you'd ideally like to deploy your modest influence over the future. The future, of course, is under no obligation to comply. I just, I just, uh, it, it, <laughs> I just feel like I need it printed and framed yes. somewhere, like my live, laugh, love or something. Like, it's, I, it is. It is my live, laugh, love. It's so <laughs> good. And I, it's long, it's wordy, but it, it, listen, it works. This idea that like, all a plan is, is your statement of your intentions and the future is under no obligation to comply. Just, it really cracked something open for me. Well, it's like, here's an idea I have. Like, (laughs) I don't know, like putting it out there, putting it out there. Well, and it's just like this idea, like the universe owes you nothing and the universe doesn't care about you. So like, why are, do you assume that this thing will, must absolutely happen? And I think What I realized in thinking that through was that I think in the past that when my plans have not worked out, I didn't realize it consciously, but that I considered it some sort of a personal failure, Mm, mm, Um, mm, like mm. took it personally or like felt like I had failed to 
contingency plan for all of the or like various scenarios. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Future proof it, Claire. You yeah. didn't future proof it. Future proof it. Use like the worst pl- term ever. Exactly. And I just it's basically the convergence of the circus that was this past holiday season and reading this book. I think I just finally surrendered to this idea that plans, no matter how excited I am about them, are not something that I could get too attached to. And of course, I'm still attached to and I'm like disappointed if something doesn't work out. But I I have, I think, been able to adopt more of a like Jesus take the wheel. It's in God's hands, like <laughs> other types of religious themed attitudes that like <laughs> I don't. You don't normally prescribe. I don't normally <laughs> subscribe to exactly. But I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's in, um, it's in the Bible's hands now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it, I can't, you know, I, I'm not in charge here. It's, it's a big guy upstairs, <laughs> or I don't believe in, yeah. or Mother Nature, or whatever exactly. it is. No, I mean, listen, I do think that the, it's like for me the reframing of a plan that is like a capital thing that is going to happen mm-hmm. versus this is an ideal scenario. Yeah. Like this is like if if like the stars like align yes. and everything in the universe and Mercury's not in retrograde <laughs> and like whatever the else and it's yeah. not a full moon and this, that, and the other, this could happen. Who knows? Who can say? It'd be nice if. It'd it's, be nice if. It's quite freeing and to think about it that way. And obviously easier said than done. Um, and it, you know, depends on if your plan is like, you know, if it's a taking a vacation, it's one thing versus something a lot more critical to your life. It's, it's a little harder to do, but. And I think especially about people like navigating like surgeries and like, yes. na- you know, like these yes. kinds of things and trying to like plan your life around that or like, yeah, that these are like, it's much harder, but I think it's still all you can do is make the plan, and which like, again, is like the thought exercise of it right. a little bit. Which I think was a big part of this book, why this book spoke to me so much, because he he extends the same sort of thinking to, to like your to-do list. Like you can try and try and try to get all the things on your to-do list done, but it's not actually ever going to happen. And this like thought that you have that if you just work hard enough, do enough things, someday everything will be done is a pretty naive way to approach stuff. As is You can't like life hack your way to it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's like, he like takes basically a sort of like Western productivity obsessed framework and like works his way backward through it to get to a more Eastern Zen mindset. <laughs> yes. He like speaks yes. the language that's a of good, the Western that's a good explainer. Yeah. yeah. And like, uh-huh, is like, uh-huh. here's all the stuff that you know and value and like, take, and then lands basically at the like, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, Pima Chodron idea of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something related to this mm-hmm. that came up recently is that I have a vacation planned. You do. And Dr. Ben Michaelis, who we've had on this podcast, who's like our management coach mm-hmm. slash, you know, my acting therapist. <laughs> you said it as I took a sip of coffee and I just can't let it go. Your acting therapist is so good. <laughs> I want to unpack it, but I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to move on. at Because we, yeah. Okay, good. Leave that in there. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but he <laughs> was basically like, look, you've got a plan A. That's great. That's nice. But like you need a plan B and a plan C. Mm-hmm. And your plan B needs to be something that you're excited about, but like that feels like 
more viable than plan A. And well, because plan A is international travel. We should plan just, a, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Plan yeah. A is international travel because like plan B, like domestic travel. Plan C is something that you deem acceptable. And that's the word he used, which I like really appreciated because yeah. he was he was like, we're not going to set the bar too high here. We're not going to act like you're going to be like thrilled to death about plan C. But plan C is way better than the day of your vacation approaching and you being at home raging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plan, plan D is, is a no. We're yeah. not doing it. <laughs> so I basically planned three vacations. You did. And like, Claire, you have seen my calendar is yeah. little, littered with cancel this, cancel that. Yeah. And like now I have anxiety about making sure to like cancel mm-hmm. with as much time as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's it's good for me to have done this and it was the right thing. But I also think that I worry about taking it too far. And it's like making contingency planning a hobby. You know, I mean, this is what <laughs> I mean. I this is like a serious point of tension between Chris and I, because he's like, you spend so much time planning for like a worry that might come true. And he's like, what doesn't want to be dragged down or with me in that way? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think yeah. what you did is reasonable in the midst yeah. of what's going on. Um, but yes. I don't think you did that. But there, I think to your point, there is a tipping point at which you are spending your entire life planning for what might go wrong. And this is something I'm just like so opposed to in general, yeah. this idea of like, I love the idea of don't try to solve a problem that doesn't yet exist. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to think about the like, what if that happens? And what if that happens? And da, 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 da. And I like fight that. And I think I have gotten to a place where that just like, is not a driving thing in my life. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to regress yeah. and let that idea of contingency planning over like whelm or like put a dark cloud over this idea of like, it's not a problem yet. So I don't need to solve it. Can we talk about long-term planning for a minute? Yeah, we're both. I mean, I don't really engage in it. Me either. Me either. And I really, I think, honestly, this has maybe more to do with us being good business partners mm-hmm. than I would have, like, ever known in the beginning. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I think if one of us were a long-term planner and the other was not, I think that would be a real struggle. That's a really good point. I never thought of that. Neither of us was ever breathing over the other one's sh- neck being like, uh, but can we but what's our five-year plan? Out a five-year plan? Yeah. Yeah. And I never really, I think I'd thought I'd been faced with the question in the past, maybe like in job interviews or something yeah. of that, like, where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, and I never had an answer for it, but it never felt like a problem before. Yeah. And it became not a problem, but people would ask us all the time when we were building, when we were growing of a kind, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And I think the first- well, felt like it had more stakes mm-hmm. then. Yeah. I mean, I think the last time I had a long-term plan is when I moved to New York to work in magazines. And I would have told you my long-term plan was at some, you know, at some juncture down the road to be an editor-in-chief of a magazine. Mm -hmm. But then that industry changed in a way I could have never, like, known at that point. The world changed. And you just can't plan for how the world's going to change. Well, and how your life is going to change, how you, you know, what you're going to want to do, what your family looks like, all of that stuff. Um, And I just... It's just not how I'm built more than anything. You've made a strong case describing somebody that you know who plans way too much long-term and then is like feels completely demolished when those plans don't work out. Yeah. And I feel like there are people I know who are just feel like very hemmed in by these long-term plans Mm -hmm. that they make that, that do feel like, not like wishful thinking, but like they're, you know, they're like sort of carved out of nothing. Yeah. And it's a vision that people create. And then it keeps people in jobs that they hate. You know, I have like various friends who I feel like, 
have stayed in jobs like way longer than they should because this yeah. is like part of the plan or whatever. Right. Whereas like maybe the friend who was who was you know at some point wanted to be a partner track lawyer and then realized that like oh this world is not for me and quit and changed things around was like so much happier than the person who you know stayed on this track that they thought they wanted but realized like no they didn't. I mean I guess that's the thing right like long term plans can be really wonderful as long as you're willing to check in on them regularly and say, is this still the plan that I want? Like, is this still Is it still serving me? exactly, exactly. Is it still serving me? And I think some in, so two things. One, I think, I wonder if all of like the great resignation stuff in the air Mm -hmm. right now, which obviously is like layered and has so many components and all of that. Um, But I wonder if some of it stems from people realizing after like a couple of years that like their plans had gone to shit, basically. That like, it's just impossible for you to be like on the plan that you were on two years ago now. Um, And because they had felt like before, like stay the course, just like do this thing. Like now that's not a thing you can do. You can't stay the course. Right. So does that change things? Does that like just shift the mentality? I think so. If you weren't a long-term planner before, you're probably really not one now. (laughs) No. And if you were one before, you maybe still, uh, maybe aren't now. Like this might be changing, have you changing your tune. Yeah. I mean, the other part of this is that like, I think some of the long-term planners I know are the most committed long-term planners have a certain amount of extreme like delaying reward mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the marshmallow mm-hmm. test mm-hmm. of like, you can tell the smart kid by the one who, yeah. the smart, like small child by the one who doesn't eat the ice, the marshmallow. Um, it's like that to the extreme. Like I'm going to be miserable now because in 10 years or whatever, when I have the house or the kid or paid my debt or like whatever, or the career or whatever it Mm -hmm. is, then I will be happy. Yeah. Like then I will have achieved these building blocks of happiness, which is just like not how being happy works. I mean, but I do have so much respect and maybe a little bit of envy for people who have been able to commit in that way. Like the people, you know, who who I think it's exemplified by the people who weren't pre-med in college, but decided they wanted to go to med school. So do their post-bac pre-med and then go to med school. I'm just like, you really, I mean, what is that? Like a five-year I mean, it's an, it's, I think, yeah, yeah, five yeah, yeah, years yeah, yeah. Of, of school that you're engaging in to get to the other side and that, and I've never been able to, it's not even that I haven't been able to plan, but I haven't been able to have that sort of like delayed gratification and sort of submit myself. Like, I know this is going to be really challenging and, and, um, I'm going to suffer a bit for it. I I have so much respect for people's ability to do that. A hundred percent. I also think that that is interesting because it, because it's someone who, um, it's different than the person who went to college and was Mm pre-med, you know, who like decided at 18 what their long-term plan was going to (laughs) be and has like been like doing that for that whole time. It's someone who decided maybe at 23, 24, like 27, what their long-term plan was, which I think is interesting. It is. It, Wow, I just have so much respect for people who do it. It's such a commitment and an achievement. Like, how do you think about long-term planning? Is there is there anything that that does feel kind of comfortable or better? I think I can think about a year ahead. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I will say that the one thing, and maybe this helps me be okay with not thinking so much further ahead, is I feel pretty committed, of course, to the extent that I can control it, to stay, to living where we live in New York. Yeah. And so yeah. that helps me that, you know, cuts down on what, you know, the number of it's things not a variable. that five years could look like. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that helps in some way. I do some think that there's something about a year that 
in making changes or in taking certain things on or in like trying different projects or whatever it is, that it can feel like running a test in a good Mm -hmm, way mm -hmm. of being like, oh, let's see what this is like for a year. Yeah. It feels less like a life direction. Totally. Than a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or like whatever those things are. Yeah. We'd love your thoughts on this one. Definitely. Send a voicemail. Yes. Okay. That's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media, and we are so grateful to the talented team over there for helping us make this podcast happen, especially to our wonderful producer, Ali Slice. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. And if you have ideas for our show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and sign up for our newsletter at a thing or two HQ.com too. If you love the show, consider supporting it by signing up for a secret menu also at a thing or two HQ.com. Hold up. 